the person who's learned to think carefully about the you know the the arguments and the questions of King Melinda or Plato's Republic or the writings of Zhuangzi or Mengzi is somebody who can use that same careful reasoning techniques to think about issues in contemporary culture, contemporary politics, contemporary economics, even contemporary science. I'm Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. Today on the podcast, how does encountering Indian philosophy make a difference in our thinking about the world around us? This episode is the first in a series of conversations with philosophers who have taught Indian philosophy at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore, an unusual liberal arts college where students first encounter philosophy through a two-semester global sequence, which includes not just Indian philosophy, but also Chinese philosophy, Islamic philosophy, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and works from European philosophical traditions. Because this academic experiment is ending in 2025, I wanted to hear from professors who came to learn about Indian philosophy primarily by teaching it in this global context. Most of them were experts in other areas of philosophy first. So I was curious, what did they learn from this experiment? Did it change their understanding of themselves, of philosophy, of the world? Well, hi, I'm Brian Van Norden. Uh, I'm the James Monroe Taylor Chair in Philosophy at Vassar College in New York in the United States. Uh, but for three years, I was proud to be Kwan Im Fung Hood Cho Temple Professor in the Humanities at uh, your school, Yale NUS College in Singapore. In addition to being a philosophy professor, Brian is something of a public intellectual. He writes op-eds for the New York Times and other publications. He's also a poker player and has some very cute pets, though we didn't have a chance to talk about pets or poker in my interview. Your main area of expertise is Chinese philosophy. So how did you get into Indian philosophy, Brian? Yeah, well, when I started as an assistant professor, I really didn't know anything about Indian philosophy. Um, I don't even think I'd read the the Bhagavad Gita, but uh, I, when I started at Vassar, I was asked to teach a course for the Asian studies program that was kind of a, a survey of Asian studies. And I had some flexibility about how I designed it. And given my interest in philosophy, I decided to create a heavy focus on literature and philosophy. So I asked some colleagues, what are some things I can look at in the Indian philosophical tradition? And they recommended the Bhagavad Gita. And I actually had a, a colleague who's now retired from Vassar, Douglas Winblad, who used to teach a bit of Shankara. Um, and so he told me a little bit about Shankara's interpretation of the Gita. And then I can't remember how, but somebody recommended the questions of King Melinda to me. And I said, oh, this is really what I've been looking for in terms of a philosophical introduction to Buddhism. And since then, I've, I've encountered other people who've said that one of the texts that first got them excited about Indian philosophy was the, and about philosophical Buddhism was the questions of King Melinda. With the questions of King Melinda, let's maybe start there because it's a text that you said grabbed you and you thought, wow, this is, this is really what I'm looking for. What was it about the text uh, that got you? Was there something surprising in there? Did it connect with other things you were doing? What did you enjoy about it? Well, I think I liked the the dialogue format and it kind of reminded me immediately of the some of the Platonic dialogues that I was used to teaching from my, my philosophical background. And as, as you know, there's also some interesting 
philosophical dialogues in works in the Chinese tradition, particularly in the Mengzi, uh, which we also taught at Yale and U.S. Just jump in here to say that Mengzi is the name of a Chinese philosopher and also the eponymous title of a collection of his conversations. Uh, you might also know him as Mencius, which is his Latinized name. He lived in the Warring States period in China in about the 4th century BCE, which is about 100 years or so after the Buddha lived in India. So I like the dialogue format and the opening discussion, the the chariot uh, analogy at the opening of the uh, second section of the questions, uh, uh, King Melinda is is really interesting and it's very systematic and it it just really shows students how with some very simple tools, you can start out having some very deep discussions about what is personal identity and then what are the philosophical implications of stances you might take on personal identity. I'll put a link in the show notes to some YouTube videos that I made which explain the questions of King Melinda in more detail. But here's Brian's summary of the chariot analogy. In the questions of King Melinda, this Buddhist monk uh, you know, is talking to a king about the basics of Buddhism. And he starts off the, the king's being very polite and says, well, who are you? And he says, well, I'm, I'm called Nagasena. And in my translation, it says something like, but there's no person as such to be found. And then the, the king Nagasena, and I like to say with my, with my students, obviously back then royalty were a lot smarter than royalty are now. I can't imagine, I mean, no offense to, you know, contemporary royals, but I can't imagine most of them having a conversation this sophisticated. But, uh, you know, the king uh, says, you know, oh, well, listen to that. Uh, this guy says that he doesn't have a self. Well, then who is it that I give alms to when I donate to uh, monks like you? And, you know, who is it who does good things or does bad things? And if somebody murdered you, I guess that wouldn't be a crime because there wouldn't be a killer and there wouldn't be a victim, uh, which are just these great kind of, you know, apparent reductio ad absurdum of uh, the position that Nagasena is defending. Um, and then the the dialogue goes on and the the king seems to be arguing for the position that Nagasena has just defended um, and says, well, look, are you identical to any one of your physical or mental parts? Like, are you your fingernails or your hair or your liver? Uh, no, of course not. We're not any one of those things. Well, are you your desires or your consciousness or anything like that? Well, no, there's no one mental state that I'm identical with. Well, are you all those together? Uh, no, I'm not that. Are you something different from all your parts? Well, no, I'm not that. Well, then I guess you don't exist because you're not one of the parts that might seem to be you. You're not the collection of all the parts and you're not something different from all the parts. Therefore, you don't exist. By the way, the reason this section Brian's talking about is called the chariot analogy is that eventually Nagasena turns the tables on the king by asking him what the word chariot refers to. And he uses the same approach, listing the chariot's parts, asking if the chariot is uh, one of them, all of them together or none of them. And when the king denies all the options, Nagasena points out that his name, Nagasena, works the same way. So there's no chariot essence and there's no Nagasena essence. Uh, there's really just parts, and by agreement we call uh, collections of 
parts by certain names when they're uh, together, but they can be collected together in lots of different ways and still be chariots in Nagasena. So it's not that it's the sum of the parts. Um, anyway, you might be wondering how we get from all of this analogy to a conclusion about selves and persons. And if you're wondering that, well, that's a good question for a different podcast. But one thing that Brian says is there are some pieces or steps here that need to be added, but this is true of all philosophical argumentation. If you read Plato or Aristotle, part of teaching it is explain to the students, well, Aristotle or Plato assumes that you see this, or he assumes you've already read this. And so, you know, it might not be obvious at first why you can't be identical with the sum of all your parts. And then in another part of the question of King Linda, he considers one of the options for something different than your parts that you might be identical with. But you can really get students this kind of systematic argument where you say, well, look, you either have to be one of the parts or you have to be all of the parts or you have to be something different from the parts. We can rule out each of these things systematically. Uh, that's just a wonderfully systematic argument and showing students that you can find this in this text and that they can think about it for themselves is really exciting as a teacher. So how does this help students outside of the classroom? You're suggesting that this is useful for them to think in this way. What kind of implications are they drawing out of this text? One thing that I, I think you and I are, are both interested, you, you specialize in Indian philosophy or, or South Asian philosophy, and I specialize in Chinese or East Asian philosophy, but we both face a problem that many people don't believe there is philosophy outside the tradition that goes back to Plato and Aristotle. And so one thing, just showing people that there's systematic philosophy in this tradition is, is very valuable. A second thing that philosophers like you and I often do is we're trying to teach people to spot errors in reasoning and to learn different logical techniques because those skills are transferable. The person who's learned to think carefully about the, you know, the, the arguments and the questions of King Melinda or Plato's Republic or the writings of Zhuangzi or Mengzi is somebody who can use that same careful reasoning techniques to think about issues in contemporary culture, contemporary politics, contemporary economics, even contemporary science. Now, some of the reasoning skills that Indian philosophers are concerned with track closely to what's going on in Chinese philosophy. Uh, so Brian explained one of these connections uh, with the idea of pramana uh, in Sanskrit, which we'd call a way of knowing in English. The original Chinese is biao, and a biao is a gnomon, because every ancient civilization has a gnomon. Uh, its simplest, a gnomon is just a straight stick perpendicular to the ground, but you can use that to give you a wealth of information, including when it is noon local time. You can tell by the direction of the shadow cast by the gnomon where due north or due south is. Um, you can tell by the length of the shadow what season you're in in the year. It's really the basis of later sundials, and it's a very useful tool. So the Moists, this ancient Chinese philosophical school, uses this as a metaphor for standards for reasoning. 
And one of their standards for reasoning is the testimony of wise people of the past. Um, let me just jump in one more time here to say this is something that is testimony that I talk about with Stephen Phillips and Matthew Dasty in season two with regard to Nyaya philosophy, if you're curious. Okay, back to Brian. And you get a, a debate about this because some people will say either this is a fallacious appeal to authority or they'll say, well, look, they can't be serious about this as a test for truth and falsity because how could the wisdom of people of the past be a test for truth or falsity? But I'm more sympathetic to the Moist view on this. I mean, again, if you ask me, you know, do I think that there was a, a war between uh, the American colonies and the British army, uh, I do. Why? Well, I mean, occasionally I've seen artifacts from it, uh, but mostly it's because of accounts that are passed down where people tell me that certain things happen. And of course, as someone who studies the past, Brian's also interested in testimony and the wisdom of more ancient people from that angle. Now, whether pre-modern philosophers were right about everything or not. If great ancient thinkers and thinkers across different cultural traditions tend to think something, that gives me a prima facie reason for believing I should take it seriously. And that goes for the Buddhist idea of no self too, whether Brian thinks it's ultimately correct. The assumption that you've got an individual self, because so much of, I think, contemporary Western political and ethical discourse just takes it for granted that we are separate individuals who aren't dependent on others, and that therefore it makes rational sense to be radically selfish or to ignore the needs of others. And arguably, you see that in contemporary differences between things like, for example, masking in some cultures around the world versus Western culture. Um, it depends on where you are in the US, but, you know, people, you know, don't think they have an obligation to do things for the well-being of others in, in some parts of the United States because they think of themselves as radically separate individuals. And just questioning that assumption, I think, opens their mind in a certain way. Now, if you're interested in opening your mind with Indian philosophy or other world philosophical traditions, including, but not only, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Africana traditions, Brian Van Norden has a bibliography on his website with readings. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Uh, by the way, if you're a philosopher listening who's not sure about whether you should dive in and start teaching any of these philosophies, here's what Brian has to say about it. You know, it, it takes some work, but, you know, think about it. There are so many people who teach Plato uh, and Aristotle who don't read classical Greek and maybe weren't specialists in ancient Western philosophy in their PhDs. They teach Descartes without reading either French or Latin. Um, even if that's not their main area, you can learn these things. Thanks for your time, Brian. I appreciate it. It was great talking with you. Great talking with you as always. Thank you for having me on the show. That's it for this episode of Sutras and Stuff. Check out the links on the website, sutrasandstuff.com, and look for the next episode, February 15th. And also remember, you can learn these things.